0: I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism and I'm so excited. I have here Dr. Susan or Susie Lopez here. Um, Susie is uh, an assistant professor in the Division of Hospital Medicine at Rush Medical Center, where I used to work, and she's also the division, um, in the Division of Community and Global Health Equity, um, both in the Department of Internal Medicine. She has a degree in Latino studies from the University of Michigan, and she completed medical school at the University of Illinois in Chicago and did her internal medicine training at Rush. She's passionate about recruiting and training learners to meet the needs of Chicago's diverse patient population. She serves on the Executive Admissions Committee and its diversity work group for Rush Medical College. As a resident at Rush, she became involved in diversity and inclusion efforts and as faculty now serves as a diversity officer for the Rush Internal Medicine Residency. She seeks to support learners who identify as underrepresented in medicine as the diversity officer and as a faculty advisor to the Latino Medical Student Association. Uh, Susie, thank you so much for joining. So happy to have you here. Thank
1: you, I'm excited, nervous, excited.
0: Awesome! Awesome! I'm. I promised This is funny because I'm like I promise I'm not scary, but that's what I used to tell. <laughs> that's what I used to think with my med students. <laughs> they were all scared of me. This was my like pre-meditation days, and I was known for being pretty intense. So um, that that changed once I started meditating in 2011. But um, I was like, I don't understand it. I'm so nice. Um, anyway, so hopefully I won't. Hopefully it will be a lovely experience. Um, and it's so interesting because you were you were at now at the institution where I was and I left in 2015 and you started 2016.
1: 2016.
0: So we did mm-hmm. not overlap at all. Yeah. Um, but you've already accomplished so much. And, and my uh, former colleagues there uh, rave about you and, and have said such wonderful things. So I'm, I'm just really so excited to, um, to start really having the, continue having the discussion about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare Um, And in medical education, because it's, it's, I think a lot of people don't realize, a lot of non-minority people don't realize how much systemic racism there still is uh, and continues to be within healthcare on the, on the like patient care side, but then also in the, you know, recruitment and, um, and healthcare professional side as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually caught up with Grey's Anatomy last night. Mm -hmm. And they, I love Shonda Rhimes. So she actually had um, one of the characters, Jackson came from like, he's biracial, and he comes from a, from a very wealthy family. But he actually leaves to actually, because of COVID goes to um, back to Boston to kind of like revamp, he wants to try and revamp the entire medical system because of all those systemic injustices that he just didn't realize were impacting his community so much. So it's just interesting to finally see and very exciting to kind of see it come to the forefront.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I, I watched randomly one episode of Grey's Anatomy last month when I was in Chicago visiting my niece and nephew and my sister. Um, but haven't seen it in years, it's season like 17 or something. So I'm I'm, I'm glad they're, um, they're addressing this. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your background that I know, I remember you, you've said that you sort of ended up in this role a little bit by accident. Um, so can you share a little bit more about your background? and
1: Yeah. So I think, and this is why I like to talk to a lot of students, especially from um, who identify as underrepresented in medicine, because one, they don't see a lot of us that a lot of people that look like me in my role, but also sometimes you see a doctor and you're like, Oh my gosh, you're so accomplished. And they think that success is like a linear process Mm. when in fact I was just like, no, I had my own struggles. So, um, uh, at undergrad, I went to the only out of state medical school <laughs> that I had applied to, which was Michigan. My family was not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I, want, I wanted to be pre med um, i didn't I had some own personal issues, so I had some trouble processing the sciences and the math um, and i I got to the point where my advisor was basically saying, "You probably shouldn't apply to medical school. Um, you need to switch." Careers, so you need to switch um, out. So I had to decide. I was like, okay. So I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I'm not going to go back home without a degree. So what what did I really enjoy, and what did I do well with? And that was Latino studies. And so I still kind of tried in the background to take a science course or two, um, but I, I focused on the Latino studies. And it took me a little longer. I did the five year program um and so I, I absolutely loved it i learned about you know you took the courses within the department of american culture so i learned about asian american culture african american culture the history um and so it was really eye opening because i knew about my culture but i didn't know about everyone else's culture mm-hmm. and just to hear a lot of commonalities of the difference uh, of the different i guess you know institutional issues that the these groups deal with um And so then afterwards, after I graduated, moved back home to Chicago and decided, I was like, okay, do I really want to do medicine? I need to figure this out because I know it's going to be a huge commitment and I'm going to have to figure out how to take those classes in order to get there. And so I took a part-time job at Lurie Children's doing research. And within like the first week, I was like, yes, I absolutely love this. I got clinical exposure, I got quality improvement exposure. And so I basically, that part-time job turned into a full-time job which then I, during, in the evenings after work, I would go take those courses at one of the universities here in the city. So it took me a while to finally finish those prereqs and then finally apply for medical school and then get in. Well, actually apply for medical school, get offered a post position. And then that was a one-year post-baccalaureate program and then do medical school. So it's a very roundabout way. But when I say that things are very... I wouldn't say serendipitous, but it's just interesting to me that everything that I went through, going through Latino studies and then medicine, and then having it all kind of come together now in the work that I do with the students, with the community, it's just, it's kind of one of those things where I was, someone had asked me about a year ago um, at one of the protests, the, the White Coats for Black Lives protests. They're like, oh, you know, I thought you wanted to do a fellowship. I was like, you know what? I'm where I need to be. I feel like where I'm, I'm at where I need to be.
0: I love that. Um, and I, I didn't know that about your, your, I mean, t- to go from having difficulty processing math and science, which is all you have to do for pre-med. I mean, that's literally all you do and then getting that advice from your, and, and that might have helped you then do it later and get better grades or however, but like, to then say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway and make it happen in your own way. That's just such a testament to your perseverance and passion. I think that's so impressive.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think, um, I mean, it's interesting because in my mind, I was like, you know, I I just had to do it and it was really hard. I'm not going to lie. It was hard. Um, But I think it also Gives me an opportunity to tell students who, who maybe are struggling yeah. or having concerns about applying to medical sp- be, being like, or even when I sit on medical school admissions, I tell my colleagues, I was like, you pro- you would never admit me, you would never admit me, but I'm here and I'm going to advocate for those students that, you right. know, maybe they had bad grades, but maybe they also had to work. Maybe they didn't have as many volunteer opportunities because- right. They had to work and help support their families so it's trying to be very holistic about the approach
0: yeah um
1: yeah and it, it's like doesn't
0: tell you how good of a doctor people are going to be the grades and the mcat scores um but it's very easy in that culture to get really caught up in that and so i think they're so lucky to have you what was it like? So when your advisor was like, this may not be the best option for you, do you feel like that was, as I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of physicians that I've, that I've interviewed, they were told by advisors in med school, uh, in college, not to apply because they were black. Like they were like, oh, you could be a nurse or you could be a, you know, and nothing wrong with nursing, but they were like, you are not going to be able to be a doctor without even really considering their grades or, or who they were. Do you feel like that was your experience with that advisor?
1: Um, I don't know. I I think what I just remember from that moment was like, I think just kind of a, a sinking in the, in the pit of my stomach, like, Oh no, like I haven't wanted to be anything else. Like who is this person telling me that I can't do this or that I shouldn't do this. And just kind of leaving thinking one being angry, being very disappointed. But I think, I mean, my grades were really bad. I, it was like, I think I left, uh my science gpa was like a 2.7 mm-hmm. um and it, looking back i was like yeah i probably would have said not necessarily the same thing to a student in that situation but at least trying to get at what was going on rather than just saying you can't do this right um so i think that, looking back on it now i think there's some understanding as to why they were saying it but also anger in the sense that like why would you just go ahead and say that without actually digging into why that was.
0: Right. Right. That's, yeah, that's a very interesting um, and nuanced approach to it. It it might have been good advice, maybe, but also like, why didn't they try to help you? Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or
1: even ask about, you know, the background stuff of what was going on or, or anything else. It was just very much, this is, I guess, it was a very paternalistic approach. I know it's best for you. you. You, This isn't for you.
0: Yeah. And I feel like I don't see a lot of, I mean, granted, okay. I should say, I should state this, that I like went to college in from 95 to 99 and I haven't been to college since then. But like, I feel like from my story and other people, there's not a lot of advocacy for these pre-med students who were trying to go through this. It's like, oh yeah, this, that, this, that. But like, if you're not, making some ridiculous grade point average, which for anyone listening who isn't in medicine, like you're kind of expected to get at least a three, five, probably in your, in your science courses. I mean, I don't know what they're saying now, but like.
1: Yeah. I mean the the number that I'm hearing from undergrad students, or even I have a younger cousin who wants to be pre-med and she's like, yeah, they told me if I don't have a 3.7, I shouldn't even consider it. And I was just like a 3.7. What? Like that's, that's almost near perfect. How does anyone do that?
0: Right, right. And then that determines your worthiness as a human being and as mm-hmm. your, your ability to help other people as a doctor. Of course, when you're, you know, 19 years old and taking organic chemistry classes. So, yeah. So anyway, so for anyone listening, the you know, the, who hasn't been through the pre-med process, it's, an, it's really grueling and you're kind of told from the, you're kind of just beaten down from the very beginning, I feel like at baseline, at baseline as a, as a, um, in any identity. So then adding to that, any sort of marginalized identity, um, is going to just multiply that or, or exponentially increase that. So, um, and it's so interesting because I was a religion major in college. I I was pre-med in college, but like, I was like, ah, and so I ended up doing, much more you know obviously i, I don 't practice anymore, and I do meditation and tapping in addition to my anti racism work so it 's always interesting to look back and and knowing that you did latino studies and that now that 's become such a part of what you're doing as well
1: yeah yeah no it it very it's I guess the way I would say it, it just feels like it's come full circle
0: yeah, so how how did you get as I really want to make sure we talk about the why what you're doing is so important and why there's such a need for the work that you're doing in medicine and in diversity, equity and inclusion and anti-racism. Can you talk about, if if you're open to it, some of your experiences going through your medical training? Because at Rush, I mean, I I taught there um, for 10 years and I felt like it was very diverse in terms of, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of Indian students and some Pakistani students, which I loved in residence. Um, maybe more in terms of the in residency, maybe less in the terms of the medical school Um, and the residency, very few black residents and very few Latinx residents. There were, there were some, but like it was majority white and um, South Asian. So can you maybe talk a little bit about your experience in your training?
1: Yeah. um, So I think I was lucky to go to the University of Illinois at Chicago because I felt like, was almost our own little diverse bubble. Um, lots of non-traditional students. I mean, my classmates that we kind of clung on to, I mean, some have had marriages, divorces, they had kids, uh, previous careers. And so those, that was the kind of group that I st- h- held on to because I had had my previous career in research.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then, um, so I felt like that was kind of a bubble, And then when I went on to residency training, I think I kind of left that comfortable bubble where I saw people from all different walks of life, Um, but I didn't notice it right away. And I think that's one of the really nice things about Rush is that I didn't realize I was one of the only Spanish-speaking residents or one of the, you know, I wasn't the only one in my class, but, but it was, I wasn't the only Latino person in my class, but it was one of those things where I was like maybe late into intern year was like, oh yeah, you're like uh, one of two or three people in the entire three classes that speak Spanish. And I was like, really, really? Oh yeah, that's true. When you began to think about it. Um, And I think after that, it was one of those things where like, I wasn't so much, I had gotten the hang of the institution, the electronic medical record. And, and you go from focusing on that to just kind of, opening your your scope to kind of taking in everything else, not just the, the patients, but like the environment. And I think that's when I started to notice that there were there were a lots of moments where maybe I was confused for, and maybe as, as a female physician, you can attest to this, but um, you can get confused for a nurse. Um, that happened quite a bit, but I was in a I was in a women in medicine conference and um, sitting with one of my co-residents and we were in a workshop and we were talking about differences of microaggressions and um, intersectionality. And I was just like, well, you know, as a, I understand that sometimes you all get frustrated because you may be talked down to because you're a woman in medicine. I was just like, but I'm a woman of color in medicine. I don't just get confused for the nurse or for, for the x-ray tech. I walk into a room, I may be wearing my white coat. People are asking me to remove their tray. When are they getting their meal? Am I here to clean their room? And I have to just say, I'm your doctor. Um, and so luckily I haven't had a lot of issues with faculty or anyone that I work with kind of get, you know, uh, initiating any of those microaggressions um, where they're mistaking me for someone else. Um, it's very, been very rare, but mostly it's from the patients and families. Um, and the reality is they just don't see people like us, um, in that role. And so you
0: just have to reinforce it as much as you can. That, it's a, it's an interesting, yeah. Cause like from white women, you're going to hear like, they called me nurse and like, I'm not the nurse I am wearing, you know, and that's where it ends. Completely, you know, I've never gotten mistaken for anything else other than a nurse. Um, and 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 for people who aren't asking the questions and like asking people what their experiences are, white people, I mean, we'll never know that it's it's a it's it's frustrating. And and again, nurses are amazing. It's just frustrating when you're expected to be one thing or another based on your identity or your your how you pass your, your, you know, how you look in the world. Um, but yeah, there's so there's so much more. So can you can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that may not be seen by white folks in the medical system and the healthcare system that you see that it's important for people to know about and, and, and what these what these big problems are and why the work you're doing is so important?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I talked a little bit about kind of the the microaggressions or the misconceptions that people have of me when I walk into a room. Um, but there's also misconceptions. It, it can, it's a two way street. It can go the other way around. And so there's also misconceptions that we may have about patients. Um, and so it, it could be, and this has kind of been in the media as well, um, talking about, and I know we've definitely been talking about it in the medical community, but the, um, the differences in care between, one group of uh, patients: white patients, black patients, Hispanic patients, Latino patients. Um, we call that disparities, and it's just been, especially with COVID, it's just kind of kind of those differences or those disparities have been there for decades, centuries. But we didn't see it, or at least the general population may have not seen it until COVID, when we saw massive amounts of uh, Black patients in Chicago being affected by COVID, and then it was Latino patients. Um, And it's not just those differences, but those differences that are instilled in us by something that maybe we've been taught years and years ago. Um, And so one of the examples I like to give is... um, Dr. Sims, who was considered the, um, I guess, the father of gynecology, um, he performed medical procedures on slave women and didn't use anesthesia and said it's because they, these individuals don't feel pain. Um, and so there still are some misconceptions now that Black individuals, don't feel as much pain or so they're, uh, they're underdosed. They're tre- their, their pain isn't treated as appropriately as it should be. Um, so there's so many different examples of that. And so I think part of what I do is, number one, I feel like I've turned into a semi-history teacher <laughs> when I talk about these things um, because a lot of people say, I didn't realize that. Or when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, a lot of people go back to Tuskegee, but then they don't realize that the hispanic or latino community will also have that hesitancy or that mistrust or what i like to call broken trust because they trusted us the medical community and the institutions we broke that trust it's not their fault um i like that and so i taught you know people don't know that there were mass sterilizations of women in puerto rico or in the south or even now with more recently with um the women who were in ice custody who had um unconsented medical procedures, and some of them don't know if they're um, s- sterile or not. So it's, it's a lot of those things that have been so ingrained in the history of medicine that we don't give it a second thought, we don't question it. And so that's part of the work I do to make sure that we're questioning it so that we can make sure that people are getting the care that they need to get. Um, and then making sure that we are making that learning environment for the students, for the residents, for the faculty, as welcoming as possible, and making sure that if there is a microaggression, if someone does say something that's inappropriate, calling them out, I will tell residents, feel free, this is something I'm working on, feel free to call me out, I will not take offense to that. Um, But also know that I will also give you constructive feedback if I see you doing the same thing.
0: Mm. Hi there, Dr. Jill Weiner here, this podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiracism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. I love that. I love that. So setting that culture right off the bat um, yeah. so that everyone feels like they can. And do you feel like people... Because there's still the power dynamic, like you're a woman and you're, you're a Latina woman, yet also you're their boss. And so do you feel like, have you had, do you feel like there's been a two-way, and maybe you're just like, you're very aware. So it's possible that you're actually not committing microaggressions, but do you feel like, because the power dynamic is always there in some way. How has that been in terms of like playing out?
1: Um, so it really depends on the way, Um, and for those of you at home, usually when we start on service, um, or we start a a set of two weeks with the residents and medical students, um, we're told, you know, make sure you let them know what your expectations are. And I make that as part of my expectations, my like one sheet of expectations Uh, towards the end. I was like, look, I don't know everything. You don't know everything. That is why we have specialists. If we're running around in circles, we're going to call someone for help. Um, I am working on this and I am happy to receive that feedback um, because we all have it. And then I'll give like an example of a microaggression that I committed. Like I was talking to, uh, you know, a friend and I, I made a comment about how, you know, we were both Mexican and he said, no, I'm Ecuadorian. I was like, well, that's an assumption on my part. It Mm -hmm. happens. We, we all have bias. We all do it. We all do it at different levels. We just need to be very conscious of it. So kind of giving that example of how, like, I even do it, guys. It's totally okay. Um, It happens as long as you're learning and kind of working towards understanding what that bias is and addressing it and trying to not necessarily reverse it, but kind of be very mindful about it. Um, That is the goal, as long as they're being mindful about it. And so far, I would say they've been pretty receptive there. I... still sometimes feel like they hold back if I, when, I, when I do that feedback session, um, like at week one, at the end of the first week, at the end of the second week. Um, but I also specifically ask about it, not just what feedback do you have for me? How can we help you grow? But also, do you have any specific feedback for me in regards to the learning environment, in regards to any microaggressions? Because if you don't ask it, they're not going to tell you.
0: Yeah. That's really, that's a really good point. And that's, it's so like something that I didn't even consider to talk about. I left medicine in 2015 and I didn't really start paying attention to any of this until after I left. And so I look back like with my head in my hands, knowing like with compassion for, because I just was ignorant. You know, it's not, I don't want to say I didn't know better because I should have known better and I should have, but I wasn't yet at that point where I did and I'm quite sure I microaggressed a lot and even though I thought I wouldn't have been doing that um so I love that that's being incorporated more now and that people like with your knowledge and your experience are there to help foster that culture
1: yeah yeah and it's um I will say I think more and more of us are doing it and I think it comes down to sometimes we know what we want to do. We know what the right thing to do is. We just don't know how to do it or what the actual next step is. And so kind of talking about that with um, the students and faculty. And I will say some of the best learning I've done has been with the feedback from students, especially in regards to that, because honestly they have like their hand on the pulse of everything that is going on, everything that we should be knowing or should be Mm -hmm. hearing about. And so sometimes I feel like they're so much further ahead than we are, and there's so much learning that can be done on that side too.
0: I love that. That's it's it's so refreshing to hear that the like the young the youngsters are. Um, <laughs> I love that word. And I have a friend who um, she grew up and she actually worked at Rush with me, and she grew up in Puerto Rico, and she speaks like perfect, perfect. Like her English is amazing, and she's like funnier than me in English, you know, like she's just like, but she occasionally would say words where I was like, "Eh?" so she would say youngsters as like, you know, for like.
1: For the students. Yeah.
0: But it was just a very formal word. And I just always found that like very um, charming. And I loved it when she said that, because that was like the word that she earned for that. She learned for that. And I always sort of say it ironically, but um, yes, the youngsters. Um, So that's, that's amazing. Um, So so what what still needs to be done? And what are you working on now? I mean, you have you you're wearing a lot of different hats in within the DEI space um, in your work. What what lights you up the most and what needs to still be done?
1: Yeah. Um, what lights me up the most, I think, is working with the students and helping them feel supported. Um, And so actually recently I added another hat. And so, um, I'll be, uh, director of diversity and inclusion for GME. So I know I've done a lot of work with, uh, so graduate medical education.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's a pretty one listening. That's graduate medical education. That's Mm -hmm. like all of the residency programs within an entire institution. That's not just internal medicine, but like, that's like pediatrics and surgery and, and ob guide So that's like a really huge position. So the, congratulations, Susie.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So a lot of the, the work that I'll be doing, I've learned a lot through working through medical school admissions and taking a holistic approach. I've learned a lot through working with the internal medicine program and I'm so grateful for the internal medicine program. I'll still be working with them, but the, just the amount of freedom um, that they've been able to give me to, do the DNI work, but also to give them feedback on how to reach out to different groups of students, um, how to get to those students to talk about the recruitment, but also the retention. Because you can recruit everyone you want, but if you can't keep who you have, right. there's no point in recruiting. And so, taking that work and then kind of giving that information, being I'll, I'll be a source of support for those program directors for all of those different residency programs to make sure that we are being holistic about review, but also that we are recruiting and retaining that talent that we have and hopefully keeping them on as faculty when they finish.
0: That's amazing, I love that. I love that you're in that role and that they're being, I I, I love Rush, I mean, when I was there, I found every organization is gonna have issues, but I remember feeling like when I got there, like we had all sorts of international um, medical graduates who came and were incredible. And I just felt like it was the least white space I had been in, in medicine, even though it was still very white. Like I just felt like, and it was different percentages of, of, of underrepresented minorities. But, um, I felt like I just met so many different people from different places and different backgrounds. Um, and I love that they're giving you a lot of people get put in those roles and they don't get any resources and they don't get any um uh freedom to to do what they think needs to be done
1: yeah yeah no i'm very grateful there's there's you know they we definitely went through the job description there's definitely things that we're going to be doing on that end or continuing but um i think it'll be exciting to see how the work with the individual residency programs is going to go it's a little it's a little nerve-wracking especially um Considering, I I think when we talk about that hierarchy, um, being able to advise those program directors, but also knowing that um, I'm a younger female Latina who is going to be coming in and being like, "How can I help you?" Um, I'm I'm hopeful that everyone will be receptive, and you know, I'm just excited to see what we're able to do for the for all of the programs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking after this conversation or, you know, as we have this conversation, it's becoming more clear to me the opportunities lost so early in the process with, with student like college students, why, why the system looks so white, why it is, is because it's, so can you talk a little bit about like the system, the systemic things that. Yeah. That are Um, right now that are keeping everything more in the status quo.
1: Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, if we're talking about where we're losing talent or potential physicians, it goes all the way down to grade school. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I'm talking about systemic things, you have people who live in neighborhoods with schools that don't have as many resources. Um, they don't see people that look like them in these roles. Um, so they may their schools hopefully will have a career day but um you know they, they may not have access to those opportunities to go see doctors to, to go to the anatomy lab um through programs like uh, what we call pipeline or pathway programs um is the term we're using now um but basically programs to kind of give them early exposure um to this to the careers in the sciences, um, whether that's nursing, pharmacy, dentistry, uh, veterinary medicine, uh, medicine for humans, um, they, they don't get those opportunities. And so we lose people through um, that leaky uh, pathway. And then um, same thing in high school, those students go on to different high schools that may not have the same resources. Um, students are told even at the high school level, Um, they may be working by that time, um, to help family out, but they'll be, you know, they may be told you shouldn't go to college or maybe just go to community college. Um, community colleges are great. Um, just sometimes students don't always make it out into the university level or finish their pre-medical prerequisites to get to the point where they can apply. Um, they may not have access to those same opportunities, you know, if, one individual's family is very wealthy and that person can take an unpaid internship. That person who has to work to help support family or themselves doesn't have that opportunity, doesn't have that luxury. Um, And then you get to residency um, or even medical school where you're taking out so many student loans (laughs) um, to, and on top of it still paying for exams and licensing. It's just, um, one, it's a very expensive career. It's a very long career. It's very grueling. Um, but the support for students who usually come from white middle class or upper class families is definitely not going to be the same opportunities that individuals from who are underrepresented medicine, Black, Latino, um, Asian American, they they may not have those same opportunities or resources to do those things. Um, and so then by the time you get to residency or by the time you get to people who are working in medicine, then you're left with 5% of physicians are black, 5% of physicians are Latino. And so a lot of times when you go through all that training, we've been talking about this training where it's all math and science, you may not learn about cultural history or the history of segregation or all these other things that have impacted these communities, So then you have a total of maybe 10% of your physicians that are Black or Latino, and then the rest maybe come from more privileged areas who may not understand the communities that they're treating. And that's where you may, or they've learned things that that historically, we just know now that we're... um, I think historical things like whether it's how we calculate how someone's kidney functions or the pain levels, anything like that, that, that those patients may not be getting the best treatment possible, even though we think they are, but it's because of things that we've learned all along that entire pathway. Yeah. Um, so it's the goal is to make sure that not just the students and residents are getting that information about the history, um, the discrimination, that kind of systemic, it it gets so ingrained. That's why we call it systemic, all those misconceptions, Um, but that the faculty are also learning it because I know if I didn't go through the education that I went through with Latino studies, I wouldn't have known this information either. Um, So making sure that everyone is aware of this information um, and that we're getting more individuals from, that are underrepresented in medicine to come to medicine so that we can also just, overall just be ready to care for a very diverse patient
0: population. Yeah, it's so it's, I, I love, thank you so much for that. Cause that was such a broad scope. And, and I wanna just like take a little bit of permission to center myself for a minute, because as you're saying all of that, I'm, I'm contrasting it with my own experience as like, you know, humans do. But like, cause, cause like I worked my ass off to get to medical school and I worked and and please know I'm going somewhere good with this. And I like worked my ass off in medical school and residency and it was really hard and it was all these things. And I think a lot of people think like, I deserve to be here. I worked hard. Like I didn't get any of this easily, but then I think about like, I went to a really expensive private school from basically pre-first until 12th grade, um, I grew up in a family of doctors. I was expected to go. There was no, there was ever no any never any question of me going to college or not. Like that was just something that was gonna happen. And for generations in my family, it had been happening. I, you know, my parents were able to pay for a um an SAT prep course. Um, I don't even know if they're using SAT anymore. It's maybe ACT now, but SAT prep course. I went to college, a private university that my parents paid for. I worked really hard, but like I was I I and I did some work, I did work while I was there, but it wasn't like my life depends on this. It was like for extra spending money. Took an MCAT prep course. I'm going through as a white woman. So people aren't like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, like there's all this stuff and I'm not learning. I was a religion major, but I I didn't learn what life was like for people. I was at a college that was mostly white people. I, I didn't learn any of the stuff that you're talking about. And then we get to medical school and I did, I did have some debt, but like, I didn't come in with debt. And so all those steps along, it doesn't take away from my own lived experience there, but it's very easy for white folks to just be like, what do you mean? Med school's hard to get over it. Or like, you know, oh, and, and because of my, my family doctor connections, I was able to get a really great like summer job or a family friend, let me work with him for the summer. So I could like have experience. And he wrote me a letter of recommendation. So like that stuff too, it's like the connections and all that. So I'm just, I'm trying to like put the pieces together or like really, really hammer home. What you're saying is that it's like a different, it's a totally different lived experience, even though some of the steps might look the same. Um, And we don't realize, we don't realize that as white people. Does that,
1: yeah, yeah. Like the the steps are still the same. You still need to go through the same training. It's just some people may have some people have more resources, some people have more support um and also may not have to deal with you know their family being impacted by systemic racism right. or 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 they themselves having to deal with racism or microaggressions. It's, it's Yeah. It's still the same process that I guess the quote that I heard a lot this pandemic has been we're all in the same storm we just all have different boats Ooh, um, some people have cruise liners some people have uh, little row boats um, it's just everyone has something different that they're dealing with
0: yeah absolutely and I think the way you describe the whole process and and how it starts so early and like what you're expected what's expected of you and what's what's shown to you and what you see and experience um it's it's just uh, you know because a lot you know you hear like white men oh it's not fair like I'm getting persecuted against no you're not (laughs) you're not you have been given everything okay I shouldn't say that because a lot of again a lot of people have had even as a white person I've had like a very easy experience in terms of getting to where I've gotten in terms of what life has provided for me, you know, like I've Mm -hmm. still had to work hard. There are people who come from backgrounds where they didn't have, you know, a white man who didn't use the first person to go to college and, and all those things. And also he could see white men in positions of doctors and he could see white men in positions of everything. And also he was a white man. So therefore wasn't, you know, was more often selected and, and not, not, um, What's it called? You know, like persecuted in any way. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think a lot of people get like, oh, well, I don't. I I'm, I'm a white man, so therefore I'm never going to get consideration for any of these things. And I I just find that something that needs to change.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's more so. I guess it's how do I put it? Um, I guess it's an issue of like meritocracy like who who merits who earns right um what should be there and um the reality is when you look at hiring practices in any business um men will apply white men especially will will apply to positions maybe they don't have all the requirements that are listed on Mm -hmm. that job description but they will go for it um whereas women or 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 any person of color, maybe will we'll be like, hmm, maybe I should do this before I apply to this. Maybe I should get this. I don't quite have it. They, they'll be a little less likely to immediately apply for that position. Mm-hmm. And so now that I think people are, you know, dealing with with their with their imposter syndrome or their imposter phenomenon, where you're like they are qualified. The, the issue with imposter syndrome is people are qualified, or they have great potential to, to meet those qualifications, but it's getting in their way because they have self-doubt. So people are starting to recognize that, that maybe they have it or they're they're figuring out how to get over it. And so maybe they, they are the more qualified candidate. And so if someone else gets passed up, the, the white male gets passed up for it, they've always gotten used to maybe getting that position, but maybe don't aware of all the qualifications that the other person may have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, gosh, it's been, there's, this has been incredible and thank you for sharing your experience and your perspective and um, uh, has given me a lot to think about and, um, and process as well. I know you're not like a entrepreneur out in the world, like doing, you know, like come to my website for this. Um, You're, you're living and doing this work um, as you, on top of like taking care of, of human life. Um, so how, how, can can people find you? How can people follow you? Um, are there organizations that maybe you're not, you know, directly involved in, but that you think people should check out or that you recommend for, for people to learn more?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think the one professional thing I do have is my Twitter account. It's Susan Lopez MD, at Susan Lopez MD. Um, so I'll post about things that are maybe going on, um, or I'll retweet. I like to amplify a lot of other, um, people on Twitter who are doing a lot of other work in this space as well. Um, I think really good resources. Um, honestly, I I feel like I've learned the most from my students, but also Audible. (laughs) Um, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, I think the one that I really have enjoyed is, um, while All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. Um, I may be misquoting the title of that book, but um, I think it gives a lot of insight as to how this starts to happen at a young age and what those differences are and why those that group maybe feel alienated um, starting from a young age and that continues on into older age. Um, so that book I really enjoyed.
0: I've heard really good things about it and it's, it's been on my list for a long time. So this I'll consider this to be my, my motivation to, to actually read it. Um, well, Susie, thank you so much for being here. Uh, have a wonderful holiday weekend. And um, I, again, thank you for, for being who you are and for all the work that you do. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.